I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... There are a number of factors that will really carry the day. Is Omicron actually the last big wave of COVID? Will we get to a point now where COVID is, in, is truly endemic? The other big thing that will have a big effect, make no mistake, is geopolitical. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Coming up, we talk with Jonathan Aberman. He is the Dean of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount University right here in Washington, D.C. You'll hear us talk about the economy. Yes, local, domestic, global. It's number one issue. The great resignation. People are leaving jobs. Is the economy affecting that? How do we fix it? We'll talk about the VC bubble. How much venture capital is sloshing around this crazy market, both here in D.C. and all across the U.S.? Will the bubble burst? And lastly, career movement. What does work at home do to people's careers? Here's our conversation. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good to Happy see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, I guess you can keep saying that well into February. That, well, that's my plan. I hate to tell you, but yet last week I signed a check and put 2019 on it. So oh, I wow. Think, well, thanks to COVID, your years no longer exist. Yes. Well, COVID, just, COVID yes. has affected everything. And let's get right into it, because mm. COVID has affected so much of what you and I see here in the in the DMV and the local economy. I guess um, the, the things I keep reading about, and I'm not sure if I see tangibly, are, quote, the great resignation, unquote, and that many jobs at all levels are are unfilled. What's your sense as an observer of the economy, participant in the economy, of those two statements? Well, I think that as is often the case, there's truth in everything, but there's nuance. Uh, recently, I've spent a lot of time looking at the local economy with my friend Terry Clower over at um, George Mason University Center for um, Regional Economics, Regional Analysis. And we just did a significant report. Labor here and jobs here, what's interesting is that we've pretty much traced back a lot of the jobs we lost in areas like uh, hospitality and leisure. The government contract industry has remained exceptionally strong all the way through. Right. So we've taken a lot of jobs back. What's happened now, and this is a local and a national trend, is that labor labor participation rates are very small. A lot of people left the workforce, the so-called great resignation. A lot of those great resignation people are people that are older, who had basically enough money to retire or were forced to retire. So there's a lot of slack in our local workforce. And as a result, if you're in a situation where you are trying to find talent right now in hospitality, leisure, in technology, as three examples, or healthcare, it's actually a smaller pool than it was before the the uh, pandemic began. So as a result, if you're an employer, you're facing a lot of pressure right now to pay people more than they used to be paid and to also provide new types of employee benefits, the most important one of which is remote work. Remote work has quickly become the most important employee benefit for many, many people. So all those things are coming together and providing a lot of pressure on local employers in a way that, frankly, uh, you wouldn't expect to see as a, as a, the economy came out of a recession, which is basically what has happened. Well, that's so, – so thank you. That That's exactly where I wanted to go, which is a recession is – has its impact. We've lived through recessions here in the DMV, here in Washington, and, and, and uh, nationally and globally. But this idea of remote, remote work, 
Uh, as you may recall, I think both of our careers in business, we've had situations where workforces have asked for more flex schedules and all of those terms we used to use. Now we're down to, I'm not coming in, right? Mm -hmm. What uh, what areas, uh, government contracting, you said, remains robust, but hospitality, technology, what are areas where you're seeing remote work sort of not working? Like like service industry, like, like lawy lawyers. There's lots of lawyers here in D.C. Well, when you say not working, the, the reality is that remote work is working. It's working for many, many employers. It's working for many, many employees and across such a section of industries. There are a couple of places where it's hard for it to work. One area without question is if you're at a company and you want to get the senior leadership together, which you do on a regular basis, that's right. very hard to do remotely. It's very hard to onboard new employees remotely. Right. It's very hard to have people doing routine tasks that require concerted effort among a lot of people remotely. So companies are struggling with that. What's easier to do, and frankly has been a long time coming, is people who are highly skilled or are able to work independently without supervision, they don't need to be in the office. And in this economy, uh, a lot of those people are working. You know, they're, they're, they're making, they're writing code, they're educating. A lot of our teachers, a lot of our our schools, our universities have been online, and frankly, they're still working. So uh, it, it's really chaotic. The real question is, what is it going to mean? So, for example, right now, you've got uh, probably the highest, I think the highest vacancy rate in commercial real estate that has ever been. We're, ever. Ever. We're, we're at 18%. But what's interesting about it is a lot of that uh, change is in Class B and Class C space, meaning uh -huh. People are moving to trophy space. So you'd say, well, what does that mean? What are employers telling us? The ones that are looking for trophy space are taking pretty much the same amount of space they used to, but what they're doing instead is they are configuring more of it for meetings and people hoteling rather yeah. than having permanent employees. The B and C wait, wait, space. What does hoteling mean? Oh, hoteling is I have an office for you to use the two days that you're in. But don't put too much of your stuff in it because when you're not there, I'm going to put somebody else in there. You don't have a property right in a particular office. You come and go. Hot swap. Yeah. Hot swap. Exactly. Yeah. You see that happening more and more. But my point is, is to say that all these different factors, while the overall labor market here is very tight, the unemployment rate is, is well below 3% here, if you take a look more closely at where the, uh, the slack is, there's a lot of reason to believe that this economy will perform better over the next few years than other parts of the country under certain circumstances. But hasn't that always been the case? Well, what's interesting, what's interesting about our local economy is the proximity of the federal government provides a cushion when other parts of the country are suffering, but it right. also provides a speed governor that keeps us from growing as fast as, as competitors nice. when times are good. And yeah. uh, what we've seen the last few years is that job growth in other parts of the country has been more than here. And that pretty much is the case. You know, it's interesting. I, I talked with you about that real estate um, percentage. I got that from Aviz and Young, the, the real estate folks here in town, do a lot of data analysis. And what's really interesting about real estate is the one part of the real estate market where people are coming back to work is government contract in an aerospace because the government customer requires, for national security reasons, that right. people are back in the office. Right. So um, this is really a confusing time. I think that overall – I'm sure we're going to talk about this. This region is well configured to ride things out, but I think it's going to get pretty rocky pretty fast this year. Well, let's year. talk about the rockiness because I have another feature I'd love your opinion on here. And we're talking with Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan is the dean of the School of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount University. 
and a well-established and uh, a senior level at the uh, venture capital legal and deal uh, and venture capital investment arena. So, Jonathan, we, we talked about the great resignation and you um, added that there was some ageism, not ageism. There, there is. There was There's some, absolutely yeah, ageism. Some demographic slicing to it, which absolutely. is fascinating. I, I actually had not had not thought about that. But let's talk about careers. Mm. I talk with a lot of people, as I'm sure you do, in the tech industry. And what they're saying is what used to be the way you got ahead, this could be at a law firm, it could be a consulting firm at a tech business, even in the factory floor. Show up early, see the boss, have a cup of coffee, see your boss or your boss's boss in the in the hallway. All of that kind of uh, kismet interaction that would be some fodder and fuel for your advancement of the company. Obviously, remote work has very little of that. What is your sense of career arcs for, let's say, government jobs or service jobs like like, like a law firm where remote work is the, is the norm? I was, um, and I am very interested in this topic, and I was talking recently with uh, a talent a talent person, a person who acquires talent at a large company here in town. And her observation was what she's seeing is that the millennials, not the generation behind, but the millennials are really focused on getting back in the office, funnily enough, because they're smart enough to realize it's very hard to progress in your career without the informal interactions that come from being around your bosses. I, I think that a lot is really going to depend upon, again, the nature of the work you're doing and the nature of the organization you're in. So, for example, if you are really, really, really good or excellent software developer, it honestly doesn't matter whether or not you're politic with the people around you. What code matters is, is yeah. the portfolio of your work. Yep. You know, you're going to be evaluated on what have you written. If you're really, really good um, news reporter, you're really, really good uh, writer, you're really, really good salesperson, I'm not really sure it matters that much because ultimately the, the ref, your work is reflected in something that's demonstrably manageable. Where I think it becomes more nuanced is if you are really solid CFO or maybe working for a CEO and you want to progress that CFO job or you're really, really good senior salesperson and you really want to move into management. Those type of conversations, that nuance is very, very hard to do on hard metrics. You follow me? Yeah. And, you know, some could argue that in a world where we want everything to be more about equity, data is the only thing that matters. The problem with that is, is that human beings tend to want to work with people they like yeah. and respect and are comfortable with, and it is impossible to develop that through data. So, bingo, DEI. So this is my this is the challenge I have tossed out to many folks, and you are a graduate of law school. You worked at law firms as, as an attorney. I think for service industries like that, it is hard to differentiate yourself without physical proximity because you can write briefs all day, and they may be so tight and so perfectly, perfectly phrased that the client may rear back in astonishment and love when they're written. But at the end of the day, you're one of many, many people chasing a few partnership slots. And especially if the firm cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which pretty much every law firm is saying they do, this is the challenge to me going forward. Well, I think you have to differentiate a relatively small part of our economy uh, around a particular service. It's a, it's a big well, part Well, actually, of if you look at overall employment and employment trends, as big as law is, it isn't that big compared okay. to other parts of our community. Look, the reality is it's like that old joke, you know, the Internet doesn't know you're a dog. Yeah. The great thing about the Internet and – and the great thing about technology is that fundamentally, it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters in many cases what you can do. So in some ways, if you really are talking about a more egalitarian workforce, the opportunity to be evaluated on your performance on an objective basis should be helpful. Okay. But here's the problem, and this is why the DEI and the 
pandemic has been such a huge double-edged sword. And I see this every day with my students at Marymount. Marymount is a majority-minority university where we have a lot of Pell Grant-eligible students. Yeah, COVID has been a disaster for them because a lot of them don't have access to broadband. And a lot of them don't don't have access to uh, internships and mentoring. So my point in, in closing this part of uh, our conversation is that DEI will require, first of all, that organizations have a much broader view about what will make somebody acceptable for employment in order to level a playing field. But yep. secondarily, people that are in the workforce um, should understand the best way to get ahead, whatever your color, your gender, your, your sexual preference is going to be to be able to do something that's demonstrably better on a database. Twas ever thus, though. Twas ever thus, right? No, no, no. Politics are very different now. I mean, data, look, you and I are are involved in selling and closing relationships. doesn't matter what color we are. It matters how many clients we we bring in. I think that many, many more organizations are data-based now in how they look at their employees, and that's what remote work's ultimately doing for them. We're talking the economy here in the world, Washington area, the DMV, as they say. My guest is Jonathan Aberman, the Dean of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount University and a local and distinguished deal lawyer and venture capitalist. We're going to talk about more elements of our local, national, and global economy and the future when we come back to What's Working in Washington. Every week on What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a DC insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. It's What's Working in Washington. I am your host, Mark Walsh. We're here again with Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan is, amongst many things, the Dean of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology, built at Marymount University here in the Washington area. He also is an accomplished venture capitalist, venture lawyer, and all great things. We were talking the economy, and I'd like to get right back into it. We've talked local economy, which obviously, since the name of the show is What's Working in Washington, makes is some important. sense. Yeah, yes. makes sense. But nationally, we're seeing some Sturm und Drang, to use the old uh, the old uh, German phrase, and our role, or I should say the Fed's role, in addressing it. Clearly, inflation is on people's minds, whether it's as rampant and as meaningful as some would, you know, someone, some party would, would, would predict. It is something that's happening, and the Fed seems to be on the lip of addressing it. What are your thoughts on what the Fed could do about inflation? Well, I think... Number one, uh, I think inflation is is real. It's real at both uh, both the consumer level and a, and a producer level. But it's important to talk about why, because that will give us an answer to what the Fed can actually do. Look, the COVID pandemic has been a massive disruptor in the world economy, and a lot of what we're seeing in the economy is a direct result of that. So, where does inflation come from? Inflation right now is coming from significant problems in the in the product chain. Why does that matter? It matters because for years, we basically have been exporting employment to China in exchange for cheap stuff. The cheap stuff isn't coming anymore because the Chinese factories haven't been working because of COVID. That drives up costs. 
The second issue you have is within the supply chain is people haven't been available to unload the ships in Long Beach and elsewhere, again, COVID-related. So the product chain, the supply chain, has nothing to do with money supply. This next thing to point out is that a lot of what's going on in the labor market, and I pointed out this to you in the last segment, and the great resignation, but also the change in our workforce has created a lot of power on the part of employees to demand higher wages. Right. Okay, and that's number two. Uh, number three is that the tax cuts, particularly the tax cuts that Donald Trump had when he was president, had the effect of accelerating the financialization of our economy, which created a lot wait, wait, of— Wait, wait, wait. Define financialization of well, our Well, what you do is when you cut taxes for a part of our economy that basically are already taking care of their discretionary spending, what you're doing is you're giving them more money to invest— and a lot of that money goes into hedge funds and private equity funds and venture funds for people seeking stuff we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, or the top 10%. Okay. Because the tax cuts helped a lot of people who own their own small businesses as well. Mm-hmm. So you take all those things together. I haven't even mentioned the normal purview of the Fed, which is the money supply. The money supply was expanded dramatically uh, two years ago because the Fed was concerned that COVID was going to cause a depression. Not a recession, a depression. Right. A depression is where all of a sudden there is no demand for anything, which is what happened in the 30s. So the Fed quite properly said, we need to pump a lot of money into the money supply. And the last issue that the Fed, again, has no control over is the Democrats, when they decided to address all the people that couldn't work, was to pass a bunch of laws to put money in people's pockets, Mm -hmm. which may in fact have contributed in some parts to the great resignation. So all these different factors come into play. They are all inflationary, either from a demand side or or supply side. There's only one that the Fed directly controls out of those, and that is the money supply. So the Fed is in a really interesting box now because people are upset about inflation. A lot of it is outside their control. And frankly, Mark, what they're going to do is they're going to chase inflation. They're not going to get ahead of it because they can't They can't get ahead of it because they're not causing it. So what's going to happen now is the economy is either going to get to a point where people are accepting inflation at a higher level than it has been, which would have an effect on mortgage rates, employment, and so forth, or at some point the Fed is going to have to get ahead of inflation. And in order to do that, it's going to have to raise interest rates much quicker than people currently believe. Well, I saw one analyst saying there'd be five interest rates uh Five interest rate increases this year by the Fed. You think that's too much? Well, Terry Clower and I, as I said, we just completed a significant project. We're looking at three, you know, when we're looking at the economy and we're looking at an inflation rate of four, four and a half. But everybody's shooting is shooting darts right now. Yeah. The, there are a number of factors that could will really carry the day. Is Omicron actually the last big wave of COVID? Will we get to a point now where COVID is in, is truly endemic? Now, for that to happen— From your lips to God's ears. Well, but here's the thing. We can't control. If COVID mutates in certain ways, it becomes more lethal, it doesn't go away. Yep. If, in fact, it doesn't become lethal, it will become a low-grade issue. If that happens, then people will go back to work, and a lot of these inflationary issues will go away. If, if that doesn't happen, though, all the factors remain in place. The other big thing— that will have a big effect, make no mistake, is geopolitical. Yeah. If Russia invades the Ukraine and we have a war, a shooting war in the Ukraine, that will have a significant effect on the international financial markets Define and the economy. We, you're saying the America gets involved in a shooting war, in a, as they say, a kinetic war in Ukraine? I, I think that it doesn't really matter whether the United States gets involved in a shooting war. I think that the reality of geopolitics and an ascendant Russia that asserts itself in the Ukraine will be so destabilizing to European community and NATO that even if it doesn't become a shooting war, it's going to be a significant problem. So believe it or not, 
an international instant like that will be better for inflation and better for the United States dollar because there'll be a flight to quality. On the other hand, if there isn't a shooting war and we just have low-grade stuff and then we head into the midterms with all the uncertainty, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the dollar and a lot of pressure on the Fed and a lot of pressure on interest rates. My point being, if I was looking to buy a house, I'd buy it today and do the mortgage today. If I was looking to hire people, um, I might think carefully about committing myself to paying a lot of money long-term because I believe that it's more likely that there'll be more – There'll be more power on the, on the part of employers six to 12 months from now than there is right now. And if I'm at a point in my career where I really am trying to decide whether or not to get the next job, if I could go to a place that was stable, I'd take the job now. I think the world is going to be very different six so months from now. So flight disability, both in big purchases like mortgages, flight disability in your career, flight disability in some ways, the reverse for employers you're suggesting, which is don't commit to a long-term employee because there may be better availability and price going my, forward. My point is that the biggest problem that prognosticators always have is you you on the one hand want to say something that's really memorable but on the other hand everything looks like today's going to be continuation tomorrow's going to be a continuation today right what's really important to note is today is so unique yeah. and so outside the realm of what is the stability that I think it's extremely unlikely that the world six months from now or a year from now is going to look like what it looks like right now. Well, this is probably what you and Terry talk about, the old phrase recency bias, right? Absolutely. Which is uh, for, for any analyst or any investor or whatever, recency bias. So you're taking re- recent data and imputing it as a, as a curve or a, or, a, or a graph that you can follow through. And you're suggesting, I agree with you, by the way, that there's no precedent for this per se with all of the forces hitting the circle of where we are, be they geopolitical, be they economic, be they um, po- uh, political mm-hmm. and, and, and issue-based. Um, so I, I, I completely agree that there's no, that, that as Shakespeare once said, the past is prologue. I think that the bard was incorrect in where we are today. But let's get to a version or a portion of the economy that you and I care about a lot and have been involved with, which is venture capital. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that there is money sloshing around the VC arena in a way that I certainly have never seen. What's your sense of how much there is and what's going to happen to the VC arena? Wow. Well, you're going to make me sound to our listeners like I'm a really dark guy. The so, dark the dark and, horses. And I'm not, but uh, I am data-driven. So here's the reality. The reality is that there are two venture capital markets to consider. There's a national venture capital market and a local venture capital market. The national venture capital market has never ever, ever had more money in it than it, it got over the last year or two. It yeah. is unbelievable. Crazy. You know, just um, we're talking about over the last year, I think a good number to look at would be roughly $350 billion went into venture-backed companies. That has uh, That is greater by a factor of six of what we think of as the internet bubble back in the late – Oh, in, in the late 90s, early aughts, which was the only time in, in memory that there was anything like this. I remember. Funds are being raised now that blow your mind. And, and Dreesen Horowitz, a well-known firm out in the Valley, just raised $5 billion to invest in new internet technology companies, Web3 and cryptocurrency. There is an exceptional amount of money nationally now chasing technology companies. What's interesting about it, though, Mark, is that Another a historical trend is more money has come into venture from places other than venture capital funds. Yeah, it's coming from hedge funds. It's coming from direct investors in the form of families, governments. It's coming from corporates, so-called tourists. So what you have right now is the venture world is at a crossroads. 
And at the crossroads, it don't look too good because over the last year, every tech public offering that's gone out is currently trading below its offer price. The Prince of Darkness, Jonathan Abraham. Well, no, I, but, I know. It's but, all, it's all, but it's my all, point is there's, data. There, there's a lot of money to be made now in venture, but it's going to be made by figuring out where the next new thing is because there's so much money now, it will chase the next new thing, which I think is going to be virtualization and Web3. Our guest is Jonathan Aberman. He is the Dean of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount College and also a experienced and uh, talented venture lawyer and venture copist here in Washington, D.C. Before we get to our final couple of questions, please tell us about TechSet. What's going on there? TechSet is a program that I and a bunch of uh, corporate partners have launched here in town to basically provide a finishing school for college juniors and seniors to get them ready to go work in tech companies. Got it. And I'm very excited about it. It's funded by the Commonwealth of Virginia we are looking for 70 students starting in February, and we'll be doing it a couple of other times, to work and spend nine weeks with us learning how to do things like work with LinkedIn, how to do things like uh, write an office memo, all these things that employers need them to do when they start. Because what we have found, interestingly enough, what I've found over the last years, I've done research, every CEO, every CEO, and every HR person I talk to tells me that the first two months of any young person's career in a business, they don't know how to function in a business. Yeah. So this program is free to participate in. The state's funding it. And what we're trying to do is find a bunch of students, economically disadvantaged students, that want to get educated so employers can hire them and they can hit the ground running. And I'm hoping that people are listening. If you're a student in a local Virginia university, check out techsetva.org. If you're an employer looking for a place where you can get talent that's been vetted, and is ready to go to work, same thing. I'm looking, basically, we're looking to change the way we bring young people into the workforce here. Techset, T-E-C-H-S-E-T dot V-A dot org? That's right. Or dot com, I should say. Both. Yes. It's Jonathan Aberman. So at this point in the show, I always ask our guests uh, if they ran the world for a period of time, let's say a day or a week or a month, what's one thing that you would start or what's one thing that you would stop or maybe both? It's the same thing. Uh, it's like Monaghan used to say, you're entitled to your opinion, but we have to share facts. Yeah. I think that the biggest risk we have to our world right now, to our democracy, to our society, is the idea that, that propaganda, misinformation, however and whoever is spouting it, is somehow given the currency of truth. Yeah. And uh, we are literally going to tear ourselves apart as a society unless we come up with some way to acknowledge that. Other than that, I got nothing for you. Well, uh, let, let's stay macro. So your, your point is... Uh, to return to where facts matter in arguments. Well, I'm a big believer in that. And, you know, what's funny about this is that you can look at how the Roman Republic fell, the Roman Empire fell. Yes. It fell, believe it or not, because the elites stopped valuing education and facts. Damn it. We are living through a time that is not new. It's just new to us. They'd say history doesn't re repeat itself, but it rhymes. It echoes. Echoes. And echoes. Sorry. And we Thank need to be – yeah. so if you ask me to change the world, I guess I would start with, I think everybody needs to read a little more history. Good one. Jonathan Aberman has been our guest here on What's Working in Washington. Again, Jonathan is the dean of the School of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount University, a local venture capitalist and venture lawyer. Jonathan, thank you for being with us today. Always great to see you, Mark. Thank you. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content – Anna DeGraff, and that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.